our scriptures to Philippians chapter 4. Our text this morning will be verse 4. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about how sometimes he would come to a text of Scripture and he would start hammering away with with a pickaxe and a sledgehammer and um, would for hours and hours bang away. And then he said when he was just about to give up, he would uh, take out a little chisel, hit it in the right spot, and the, the text would just open itself up and outline, outline itself uh, for him. I had one of those experiences this week as I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I outline this passage so that I can communicate it? And just when I was about to give up and just tell Connie not to put anything in the bulletin, um, I stood up in a little bit of frustration and my eye just kind of glanced back at the verse that I because I'd printed it out and it made so much sense. And so it is, um, it is probably the simplest of outlines that you have on the back of your bulletin. Rejoice, point one, in the Lord, point two, always, point three. Please hear God's Word. Verse four, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. God, we do rejoice in Your presence. We rejoice in You for the, because of Your great love with which You have loved us. We rejoice in You for Your Word that uh, You have given us that teaches us about You, teaches us how to love You, and most of all, teaches us of Your great love for us. Help us now as I open Your Word and proclaim it uh, in your people's hearing, I ask that uh, you would implant it in their hearts, that they would live it in their lives. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we had this election last Tuesday. It didn't turn out as many had assumed it would. I'm sure some in our congregation were happy with the results. Others were not so happy. Uh, to put it mildly, I know that because I heard from several people this week. So, how are we to think about the results of this election as Christians? Well, first of all, God is ultimately responsible for whom we elect. No king, no prime minister, no president ever ruled or governed without God ultimately placing that person into power. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject or subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's Romans 13, 1 and 2. Now, this does not mean that God approves of how these rulers rule. God instituted the kingship of Saul. Yet He strongly disapproved of how Saul ruled Israel. God disapproved of the great majority of Israel's rulers and of Judah's rulers. 
Secondly, God is the one who cares for His people. This is always the case. No king or president will ever replace God as the caregiver for His people. And no king or president is ever able to override God's will. If a ruler's positive, I'm sorry, if a ruler's policies negatively affect God's people, then it is ultimately the will of God. Rulers throughout history have persecuted and even killed Christians. And there are many Christians presently living today who are suffering greatly under Muslim or communistic nations. No ruler is able to lift a, hand, lift a finger against a Christian in direct contradiction to God's overruling providence. God allows His people to suffer. God allows His people to suffer at the hands of unjust rulers. Now at this point, I need to take a moment to address um, the fears that have arisen of late there are those who are predicting a new recession. There are others who are wondering what will happen on January 1st if we go over the quote-unquote um, uh, financial cliff or physical cliff or whatever they're calling it. Uh, I have two quick responses. One, a renewed recession will not be as dire as the Great Depression. Um, I didn't see Walter here this morning. I could ask him to confirm that. Um, our nation uh, recovered from the Great Depression and, um, and saw its best days afterwards. Uh, also, Christians have lived and are living under worse conditions and more oppressive governments than we in this country have ever imagined. And so I know that there are a lot of, of, of emotions right now that are, um, that are causing us to think that, that uh, things are going to get unimaginably bad. Well, Christians have lived under difficult circumstances, under circumstances beyond which we are able to imagine that God is faithful to His people. He is faithful to His church regardless of economic circumstances or the character and actions of those who govern us. And this brings me to my last comment. And this comment leads us into our Scripture text this morning. In fact, I want to frame my last con comment in the form of a question. How should we as Christians respond to the results of this election. And I'm not simply talking about the presidential election. There were local, state, federal elections at all levels. How should we as Christians respond to the results of this election? How should we as Christians respond to the present condition of our country? How should we... Um, respond or, or um, think about the future prospects of our nation during the next four years, during the next decade, during the next four decades. 
Our Scripture text this morning gives us the answer. Philippians 4, verse 4 tells us, in fact, it commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. And then Paul says, in case you missed it, I will say it again, rejoice. And this is not just one response of many. Um, This is the central response of Christians, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of whether everyone we wanted to win the election won, or whether everyone we voted for lost. Being a member of God's kingdom means that your core response to everything in life is to rejoice. Listen to Romans 14, verses 17 and 18. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, the Apostle Paul tells us. Or listen to James uh, chapter 1, verses 2-4. through 4. James says, Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet various trial or meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Also, Romans three verse verses three through five, Paul says, "We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance." And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul commands us to rejoice. It is not optional. It is not a passing thought in Paul's mind. We are to respond to any and to all circumstances by rejoicing in the Lord. But you ask, how can a feeling be controlled? How can I rejoice when I don't feel like rejoicing? My response is that feelings are not beyond our control. Because we are sinners, our thoughts and our wills have really been turned upside down in a lot of instances so that we become dominated by our feelings. We feel this way. We feel that this will make us happy. And so our thoughts follow our feelings. Our actions follow our feelings. And uh, we have everything upside down. Therefore, we think that we cannot rejoice when we feel bad. Um, or we, we think that we can only rejoice when we feel good. But the way that God made us is that our feelings are to be shaped by what we think and by what we will to do. Now some of you may be thinking at this point, what are you telling us to do? To rejoice in spite of our feelings? Are you suggesting that we have this stoic attitude that says, it doesn't matter how I feel, I'm to rejoice anyway? Well, that's not really what I'm saying. 
Rather, I'm saying that we must so think and act that our feelings will follow. Look at uh, our look at at uh, verses eight and nine here in this same chapter, because I think this is reason why Paul wrote verses eight and nine. He says, "Finally, my brothers," and he's telling us how to think. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what are we to do? We are to think about these things. And then he says, And what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. And what will be the result? The result is the peace of God will be with you. You see that? We think, we act, and our feelings follow. And our rejoicing, our feelings of rejoicing, our emotions of rejoicing will be real and genuine. But there's something more foundational than our thinking and our acting. And that is our beliefs or our faith. Our faith shapes our thoughts. Our faith shapes our motives. Our faith is to shape our actions. And therefore, ultimately, our faith is to shape our feelings and our emotions. You can see it even in our text. Look again at verse 4. We are to rejoice. It is a command. It is an imperative It is not optional. You are to rejoice. But it's not just rejoice by itself. It is to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord is the ground for our rejoicing. The Lord is the foundation for our rejoicing. The Lord is the object for our rejoicing. But if the foundation for our rejoicing is found in our circumstances, then our joy is going to move along with our circumstances. If our circumstances are wonderful, well, we're happy. But if our circumstances are bad, and Christians do suffer a lot of bad circumstances, then our joy will be down in the gutter with our circumstances. But the Apostle Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings um, lead to to our perseverance. And our perseverance under suffering leads to character. And our character, our growing in character as we are going through sufferings leads to greater hope as we rejoice and God carries us through. When we ground our rejoicing not in our circumstances, but we ground our rejoicing in the Lord, then we can rejoice above our circumstances. We are not held captive by our circumstances. Our feelings are not held captive by our circumstances. Why is that the case? Well, if you're in Jesus, God loves you. If 
here in Jesus, God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son to go to an awful cross, to die an awful death for you. Our God is sovereign. That means He is in control. Every circumstance in your life is God's providence. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. He's in control. Not only is He in control, He promises for His children that He is working everything for their good. Now, it might not be for our happiness sometimes, but it is for our good. When He sends us through trials, His Word says it is for our good. When He sends suffering into our, into our lives, it is for our good. When He sends loss, into our lives. He says it is ultimately for our good. Our God is good. And He has a good purpose in your suffering. He is making you more like Jesus as you trust yourself to Him. This means for the Christian, you have nothing to complain about. Now, we like to complain I like my pity parties. My wife can tell you. I love wallowing in the pity parties from time to time. But I have no right to because my God loves me. My God is in control. My God has promised to work all things together for my good. And those things that I don't like, that is for my good as well. You can lose your job. You can lose your career. And I know there are some here this morning who are facing that very prospect. You can lose your money. You can lose your spouse. Many have lost a spouse. All of us will lose a spouse. Some have lost children. Others have lost parents. As a believer in Jesus Christ, in spite of those things which are that we think most terrible and really are, are part of God's goodness to His children. And you can rejoice in the Lord regardless of those circumstances. How do I know that? Well, He promises. Secondly, this joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Rejoicing is simply a variant of joy. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a byproduct of the Spirit's work in your life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, just like an orange tree is going to grow oranges, a Christian is going to grow joy. And that joy will be rooted in the Lord. And then, I'm going to try and bring this to a close rather quickly. Rejoice 
in the Lord always. Well, when can you take a time off for your pity party? Well, there's that word always. You're not allowed that luxury, if I might call it that. Daily, hourly, yearly, monthly. It is your duty to rejoice in the Lord regardless of the circumstances. God doesn't take time off. His eye and His care is always on you. To say that I can take time off, that I can have my pity party, means that you are not trusting the Lord in that area of your life. Regardless of the disappointments that you have faced or are currently facing or will face, regardless of your weaknesses, regardless of political turmoil, economic um, strain. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Our God doesn't change. And so we can always trust Him. I was going to give a few reasons why we fail to rejoice. I'm just going to run through a few real quickly. Number one, areas of unbelief in our life. We don't trust the Lord as we should. Number two, lack of discipline. Um, We don't fill our minds with the honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent things that are worthy of praise. We don't actively seek to obey God as um, diligently as we should. Our minds get cluttered. Our minds are taken off of Jesus. Our minds are placed on our circumstances. Our circumstances fill our whole uh, line of vision. All we can see are these great, big, horrible circumstances in front of us. And we forget to lift our eyes above our circumstances to our God. And I've said it many times before. If you've got a small God, you're going to have big problems. But if you've got a big God, your problems are going to shrink because they fit nicely in the palm of His hand. Um, Sometimes we're... um, we, We look to other sources rather than God... We look to our own resources. Well, I don't like these circumstances. I'm going to crawl out of these circumstances. I'm going to do everything that I need to do to get out of these circumstances. And we forget about God. And we forget to rejoice. This rejoicing is actually the key to living a successful, a victorious Christian life, if I might use that kind of language. I think there's a reason why Paul added this after uh, he he spoke so so poignantly to Iodia and Synecdoche, because he knows if their real uh, desire is to rejoice in the Lord, if they are motivated to rejoice in the Lord, that means that they've got to go back and reconcile. He's going to talk about contentment a little later. You can't be contented and 
uh, and not rejoice in the Lord. Our God will give you everything you need to rejoice. This kind of rejoicing is not something that you have um, inside yourself. This is rejoicing in the Lord. It is a, a grace of God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And He will so work in you. Fill your mind with the beautiful, the excellent, the praiseworthy things of His Word. And He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He will give you that peace that passes understanding. He will give you that joy that our Lord Jesus says cannot be stolen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we have considered ever so briefly this um, great, this pivotal passage of Scripture, Father, I ask that You help us to rejoice in the Lord always. Father, I ask for Your people, especially who are going through trials, who are gripped in the, um, in the uh, grip of anxiety, as we'll be uh, discussing this at more uh, detail next week. Um, I ask, Father, for Your uh, care for them. Remind them of Your great love that they might rejoice in You. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.